This week on Writers, Inc. I think authenticity is one of the most common traps. It's a crock. Nobody's authentic. Nobody. You stop being authentic after you were three months old. As soon as you got out of diapers, you're not authentic. After that, everything you're doing, you're doing on purpose. You dress the way you dress, talk the way you talk, do what you do because you want to get something in return. That people go to work on Tuesday, even if they don't feel like it because it's their job. They're not being authentic. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. JD, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm 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 thawing out. We 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 had a little family field trip this morning. Um, so I I live on an island, which we've talked about a million times. But like every day when I go for my run, when I cross the beach, there's another island that's right off the coast of our island that's really small. And the only thing out there is this tiny little white building that used to belong to the Coast Guard like years back. It was a, a Coast Guard life saving station. Um, and then there's a, a lighthouse attached to it. And it's one of those things that just kind of it's completely fallen apart like over the last hundred years or so. And, and somebody's been out there restoring it. Um, but I really want to use it in a book. So I kind of reached, you know, talked to a couple neighbors and figure out who was working on the restoration project and got a hold of him. And he's like, oh, yeah, bring the, the wife and kids and let's let's hop on the boat and we'll, we'll head on over there. Um, so we, we got to go out to this lifeguard station from, you know, I think it was built in like the late 1800s or, or something crazy. Um, and he's just working strictly off donations, but completely rebuilding it and turning it into a museum. Um, wow. So we're just wandering around on this, this little island. And it's just it's so cool to, to see stuff like that. Yeah, that is cool. Did you get, did you have anything like that in Florida? Were you near the coast or were you inland more? No, we were we were right on the coast. Um, and nothing nothing as good as that. Like everything in Florida is is kind of new. You know, like Florida reminds me of like one giant like a strip mall or something. Like everything <laughs> was built like within the last twenty years. Um, the closest cool thing that we actually had um, right off the coast there was a German submarine that that had gotten sunk during the war. Uh, and you could go out there and dive on it. And I went out there one year with, with my buddies, and I think we were probably about 17 or so, um, in a, this rinky-dink little boat, you know, with a motor on the back, and, like, we're bailing water out as we went. And we finally got to where the, the submarine was, and we were able to dive on it. But, like, it was so deep, like, by the time we got close, we had to turn right back around. Um, and for the most part, it, it's been sealed up pretty tight because they don't want anybody to get stuck in it. Uh, but that, that was kind of it. Like, you know, for everything else around us was, was you know, fairly new, like within the last 20, 30 years. What about you? you well, you're in Ohio. There's nothing in Ohio, right? Yeah, I, I've been pretty <laughs> much landlocked. Uh, I mean, Lake Erie's got some cool stuff like that, too, because it's got a bit of a longer history. And so there are some lighthouses uh, in the area that are that are pretty cool. Uh, some of them you can get to, some some you can't. But, uh, you know, I, I grew up in western Pennsylvania and there was, you know, weren't really near the ocean at all. Um, so I, I'm always fascinated by like island life and, and sort of coastal living. So 
Well, I, re- cool. I really want to include the, the island where I live in the next book, and I've been trying to figure out how to do that. And there, there's a couple houses, you know, that people claim are haunted and that kind of thing. Uh, but I have to be careful with that because if, you know, if I list real places, people actually show up to look at those real places. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't want to do that to my neighbor. Um, you know, like there's a tavern, what, well, what used to be a tavern that's right on the main road that's got a, a fascinating history. And there's been books written about it. Um, but, you know, it's somebody's home, you know, so I don't want, you know, strangers showing up on their house. So I, I really like the idea of using this little house on an island somewhere because you can see it from the mainland but it's a real pain in the butt to get to um you know so we don't have to worry about a whole lot of foot traffic going there and their end goal from the restoration is to actually turn it into a museum so if i do send people that way because of a book um it you know in in the long run it's going to work out for the best for everybody so that that's kind of what i'm focusing on right now yeah you can get a couple paperbacks sitting in their gift shop yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, crazy stuff in the news right now. I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's a, a bidding war going on, um, and, and not for something I ever thought I would see, but it's for the new James Bond movie. Um, really? and App, Apple TV and Netflix are, are both trying to, to pick that up to, as a first run on their, their streaming service. Um, wow. ra- rather than it releasing in theaters. And apparently this already happened. Um, there's a, a Tom Hanks movie, a World War II movie. Um, the, the name escapes me. I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's Greyhound. That's it. Um, App- Apple just paid $70 million for it. Yeah, it was supposed to premiere in the theaters, and it's another one of those movies that just got bumped and bumped and bumped, and finally the studio said at 70, it's, your, it's all yours. Um, so, so now that's actually streaming on, on Apple now. Um, so it makes me wonder about some of these other projects that we were talking about, you know, like Wonder Woman is still in limbo and, and, you know, obviously it looks like this is going to be the fate of the James Bond movie. Um, but like the idea of a James Bond movie premiering at home, you know, and instead of in a theater just seems so weird to me. Um, but you know, in 10 years, who knows, that might be the norm. Yeah. I don't think theaters are coming back. I just can't see that happening. I mean, you think about like just just behaviors have changed so much in the past 10 years like when we were kids or, or younger we we used to sit around a television as a family like people just don't watch stuff together anymore like sports might be the exception but like my kids and their friends they don't watch things together they're all watching individually on their device and like they'll talk about it or they'll text each other while they're doing it but people don't gather in a in the same physical space anymore and now with the pandemic i just can't see how theaters are going to make their way back no, I, I spent, you know, like football is the one thing that I just, I try to watch live, you know, just because it's so difficult to, to not hear what happens. Um, but I like to spend Sundays with my daughter too. And she's at the age now where she's actually got a couple of shows that she really likes. Um, and because we don't really watch a lot of television in the house, we only have, we've technically got one TV. Um, we've, but it's a, it's a big TV <laughs> um, in, in our family room. And then we've got a home theater, which has a, a monster screen in it. It's like 200 some inches. Um, but it, that we're still working on light control in there. So you can't really use it during the daytime. It's got to be dark. So Sunday rolls around, football comes on, and Dada really wants to watch football. Um, Ember really wants to watch it's, uh, Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown is, <laughs> is her latest. And she will watch it on repeat all day long. Um, so this past Sunday, in order to make everybody happy, that was, you know, the Great Pumpkin was playing on the big TV and I had my little iPad out and I was watching the football games. Um, but I, I know what you're saying. I mean, there, there's families now where literally every family member will be staring at their phone or their tablet, you know, with something else maybe playing on the television in the background and everybody is just off in their own little bubble. And I, I really miss the, you know, family all getting together around the TV to watch one specific thing. Um, well, you yeah. and I grow, grew up at a time where, you know, like everybody watched JR get shot at the same time. You know, yes. we, we all saw the final episode of MASH together, you know, as, yeah, as a Yeah, every as Thursday we were sitting watching Cheers, like, you know, it was just a different, different way, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 
totally different that's gone away and I, like you said i don't think it's coming back I, i'd love to see theaters find a way to pull out of this i, I think the only way that's going to happen is if they somehow come up with some kind of more immersive um experience and, and, and i know a lot of the studios are working on augmented reality um as as a next step you know we're either using you know like you know special glasses that go way beyond 3d um, to, to really immerse you into the movie, but it's it's going to take something really special like that, I think, to get people to go to the theater over, you know, like in, in my case, like I built out a, a ridiculous home theater, 200 some inch screen, and it didn't cost a whole lot of money. You know, the projectors aren't very expensive anymore, and you know, like projector I have as a throw, you know, I think it can cover like 400 inches in, in one, you know, as a throw. So, I mean, you could build out a, a you know, regular full-size theater in your home if you've got the space for it. I know a lot of people that are taking garages and convert them for that kind of thing, and you know that that may be where a lot of this stuff goes, and people just start watching these things as first run. Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't take much. I mean, do the math. It doesn't take much to justify that. Like if you if you go to the movie theater on a regular basis and you're you're dropping fifteen or twenty dollars per person every time you go, like it doesn't take long to add up and just like wow, I'll just buy the projector myself. Yeah, and even the movies themselves. I mean, like right now, you can buy a first-run movie for twenty bucks, you know. And it's yeah. like you just said, it's it's twenty dollars a person if you go to the theater. So you know, we've got my me, my wife, a couple of friends watching a movie for the first time. But you know, in the comfort of our own in our, our own home, where we can actually hit the pause button when somebody's got to run to the bathroom or the kitchen, um, you know, the, the convenience factor is is there. Um, so we'll we'll see. I'd be curious to see how that plays out for content creators. The whole sort of bidding wars and and. Uh, you know, selling to streaming platforms as opposed to going through the movie uh, distribution. That's going to be really interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of afraid because I think, um, you know, they're going to really fall back on their staples, the real money makers, and a lot of the smaller projects that, you know, might have gotten financed before, it's not going to be there. Um, you know, who, who knows? I mean, in, you know, like a James Bond movie, I don't know what that costs to film at this point. I mean, I'm guessing a couple hundred million dollars. So it's going to be a pretty price tag, you know, big price tag to, to sell it to somebody. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, gonna, we're all going to have to just, I guess, sit back and wait and see how that plays out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Speaking, speaking of money, I just wanted to yeah. throw something else out there. So I, I had an experiment that I mentioned when we first started this show. Um, I had started, um, using Baker and Taylor as a distribution center for some of my oh, right. books. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to warn everybody off of that, um, because now I'm about a year into it. Um, I actually just sent them off to a collections company. Um, at, at oh. this point that they owe me in, in the five figures. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah. So it's, and I don't know what the logic is behind it. Like they're, I mean, they're basically just very slow as far as paying their invoices. Um, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm chasing like literally every dollar with them. And the only reason I'm bringing it up on a podcast is because I don't want to see indie authors running out there, setting up a relationship where they get, you know, dig a deep hole with, with a vendor. Um, there's, there's honestly no excuse for it. Um, I, you know, that kind of business practice is not something that I, I tolerate, which is why I'm sending them to collections. Um, and it, it's not the kind of company that I want to do business with. And, you know, I, I kind of spoke highly of them at the beginning of all this, and I, I, I want to let people know where it's at right now. So, you know, while it was nice to have the secondary distribution channel, um, you know, Ingram is, is still able to get it done. They're, they're still getting my books in the libraries, um, getting them to bookstores. Um, Baker and Taylor, they, they pulled their services from bookstores, which aggravated a lot of people. And so their libraries are really their only, you know, their, their only distribution at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, I've got bills that are 120 days past due with them. And, you know, I just, that's not something that I, that I want in my business environment. Wow. Are, are they communicating with you at all? Yeah, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm getting canned messages, you know, I have to send two or three emails and, and I don't hear from somebody for, you know, maybe a week or two weeks. Um, then I get a canned message back, you know, blaming it on the virus. 
um, which makes no sense because people are buying these books from them. You know, they're they're selling these books. You know, they're they're just a way station in the middle of the process. They're not paying for the printing cost or anything like that. They're literally just warehousing them and shipping them off when somebody comes in with an order. Um, so the overhead can't be that that high. Um, but it just makes me wonder, you know, like if they're five figures in deep with me, you know, I'm just a, you know, one author, you know, what, what kind of bills do they have sitting out there with some of the, the bigger, you know, the, the, you know, big publishers. I mean, they, they, they could be in some serious trouble right now. Wow. Well, that's unfortunate, but thanks for giving everyone a heads up on that. Absolutely. What's going on with you? Well, uh, we had a good time this past week. We wrapped up the career author podcast and, uh, had you join us there and, uh, it was a good time. It was fun. It was, uh, Bittersweet, you know, it's something that Zach and I have put a lot of time in and been doing it for years. Uh, but we're really excited about what's happening here, which uh, brings me to a, a little bit of a small congratulations to you. We have we have somewhat of a milestone this week, right? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> do, do you want to say it or should I? Go ahead. You go, can say go it. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, this is uh, this is episode fifty, right? It the is. One, the yeah. one we're filming. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, fifty episodes. It, yeah. Uh, it literally just flew by. I can't believe we're we're that far in already. I know. I mean, we're, we're coming up on a year and uh, for people who don't know as much about the podcasting world, 50 is, is quite an accomplishment. Uh, most podcasts don't make it to 10 uh, and, and that's just because the creators start with a lot of passion and then they see the numbers and nobody's listening and they get discouraged and they quit. Uh, so, so 50 is quite a milestone. Pretty proud of that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, for me, it's it's easy. I show up for 15 minutes out of the week. I, you're doing all the heavy lifting. You're interviewing everybody. You're doing all the editing. Um, you know, so kudos to you for, for holding it together this long. Uh, the, the numbers have been fantastic. I mean, I, I don't know where all, everybody's coming from, but, you know, our audience is increasing, you know, hand over fist every week, um, which is awesome. Um, and it's fun. You know, I, I like, you know, this is one of my, my only moments where I get to talk to somebody outside of my office where they actually let me out of my little hole for, for 10 or 15 <laughs> minutes to, to speak to somebody. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm enjoying it. Me too. Me too. It's, it's been fun. It's been fun getting to know you. It's been fun uh, sharing the journey on the podcast. And uh, I'm really excited about it. I'm excited to, to bring Zach in for periodic episodes. And, and I agree, man. It's, you know, I, I've done enough podcasts to know that when you start to see the numbers plateau, that's usually means you've capped and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means you sort of tapped the total available audience. Uh, but our numbers continue to grow and, and grow significantly. And uh, that's fun to see. Yeah. Well, I can't see what, I mean, once that comes in, I think um, we're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, a few little housekeeping things uh, that we're going to mention. This is kind of uh, new as, as we're starting to transition a little bit. Um, and, and some of these changes here. But uh, we're really proud to announce that uh, Kobo Writing Life uh, is joining us, coming over as a sponsor. So they've been sponsoring the career author for a number of years and have been behind many of our events. Uh, Tara and her team are excellent. And um, they've agreed to, to kind of slide over and now sponsor us. So um, if you guys are at all you know, publishing wide, Kobo Writing Life is the place to go. Um, full control, you know, promotions, a lot of great stuff, and we're thrilled to have them uh, sponsoring us from now on. Cool. Well, I, I love Kobo, um, and, and it's funny because a lot of people don't realize just how big they are. You know, particularly outside of the U.S., everybody right. thinks Amazon and Kindle and Kindle and Kindle and Kindle. It's some, um, but you go outside of the U.S., and, and Kobo's got a really strong share of the marketplace. They do, and, and I'll tell you what's really great about Kobo, and I know this from firsthand experience is. Um, you don't get canned email responses. <laughs> you get you get responses from real people. You get them timely. Uh, their customer support team, going all the way back to having Mark Leslie Lefebvre there, is phenomenal. And so, if you have any problems, questions, or concerns, and you email Kobo, you know you're going to be treated well. Yeah, absolutely. 
Cool, cool. Other thing we're going to mention is uh, Zach and I have kind of slid the uh, the Patreon campaign over. Uh, that's uh, officially kind of set up now. So if you're interested in becoming a patron of uh, the Writers Inc. podcast, just go to patreon.com slash Writers Inc. podcast, and you can find out all the info. And a shout out to our first official patron, uh, Joanna Penn. She signed on <laughs> this week. So thanks, Joanna. Well, Joanna's awesome. Uh, you know, I, I only have a handful of podcasts that I still listen to at this point, mainly because I just don't have the time. Um, but she, she's one of them. I mean, every, every week, I mean, she, her show is just so informative. Um, and I don't even know how long she's been on at this point, what, 40, 50 years. It's, 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 it's been a little while. <laughs> yeah, she's been around a while. Yeah, yeah. But great show. And I, I've you know been listening from the beginning and I, I don't see that one going away anytime soon. Yeah, likewise. So it's great to have her as our, our, our first official Raiders Inc. patron. So yeah, thanks, absolutely. Yeah. Nice. Well, okay. I think we're ready for the guest, right? We, we are, and this is, this is somebody you've been really looking forward to, right? Yeah, this is Seth Godin. Uh, Seth Godin's kind of a he, he's kind of a legend, especially in the internet marketing nonfiction world. Mm. Uh, just uh, just a guy with rock solid consistency. One of the one of the most wisest people I've ever met. Like he he's got a lot of experience and. He's incredibly articulate in the way he delivers it, and uh, I've read all of his books, and um, just so pumped to be able to get him on the show. Cool. Well, here he is, Seth Godin. Let's talk about what your friend Stephen Pressfield calls resistance. Uh, how do you define it? Do you believe in it? Uh, Steve and I have different takes on it, but yes, I when I read that book, I was sitting in this room by myself, and I stood up. And at the top of my voice said, why didn't anyone tell me about this? And the book had been out for years and no one had told me. Once you smell the resistance, once you taste it, you will know it is real. And um, the essence of it is that there are triggers throughout your brain, really subtle ones, that will be uh, put in your way anytime yourself feels threatened or is about to be seen. And that feeling, the feeling that makes us change our outfit three times before a date, that makes us sabotage our work, that pushes us to be on social media, but not fully, that uh, invents writer's block. Steve calls that resistance and he's correct. And the reason he calls it resistance is the harder you push on it, the harder it pushes back that the closer you get to doing the work you need to do, the harder it is to push against it. Mm. And so, yeah, I believe in it and I'm glad I have a name for it. Yes. How do you overcome it? So this is my contribution to the field. You can't make it go away. And as soon as you stop trying to make it go away, life gets way easier. The alternative is to welcome it, to treat it like a compass that if you go through a whole day without feeling resistance, you haven't worked very hard. But in that moment, when it feels like it's more than you can bear, that is your brain's way of telling you you are onto something. And my solution is to say thank you and keep working. Because if you refuse to fight with it, you take away its power. If you refuse to fight with it, it will realize, because it's very smart, it will realize it shouldn't keep fighting with you because the more it does, the more it calls attention to itself. And so we get to pull a trick on ourselves. And uh, in my new book, I treat the word yourself or myself as two words, not one. Because when we talk to ourselves, 
who is talking and who is listening exactly. There are two voices in our head. There's two of us. There's the one that shows up and does work. And then there's the other one that pretends it's a genius. And we have to figure out how to trust that other voice so that we can get the best out of it. If you consider yourself to be a genius, could that also be the other uh, side of the coin in that it's, it's what's driving your passion? And, um, and I'd love to hear sort of your definition of, of what passion is and maybe how you foster it. So one of the other questions I get asked a lot is, how do I find my passion? How do I know when I'm pursuing my passion? And my answer is there's no such thing. Nobody was born to be a juggler or a novelist or a painter because a thousand years ago, none of those things even existed. So it's not genetic. What we do is we reverse engineer a feeling and call it our passion after the fact. And we will use it to hide from work we ought to be doing by saying, oh, that's not my passion. Well, who decided that? It seems to me a shortcut to a happy life instead of chasing something you'll be passionate about is deciding to be passionate about what you're doing. I uh, love that. Uh, and one of one of your favorite books of mine is is The Dip. And I, I find myself pulling it off the shelf all the time because I'll get so far into a project and I think, do I keep going or am I not getting traction? And how is that related to my passion? And, and how do you navigate through the dip yourself? Right. So uh, for those of us, for those of you just joining us, the dip is a force of nature and it works like this. Well, it's at least a force of economics. Anything that is valuable is valuable because at some level it's scarce. Because if there's an infinite amount of it, we won't go out of our way to get it. And if it's a human endeavor, what makes it scarce is that at some point it got really hard to do well. That is the dip. The dip is that gap in between starting something and getting to the other side. So in most people's life, they have encountered a dip in February of any given year because you join the gym at the beginning of the year and you quit in February. The people who make it till April end up in good shape but most people don't. And so we define good shape as that thing that most people don't have because they couldn't make it past February. And the argument of the book is, if you're that kind of person, which is almost all of us, don't join the gym just assuming you'll be able to keep doing it. Either don't join the gym at all, or when the dip shows up in February, welcome it and push your way through. But quitting in February is really stupid. Because that's what everybody does. It's a trap. So the answer to the obvious question of how do I know when to quit is try to see it before you begin. Before you decide to make it in rock and roll, take a look at who has come before you. What did they have to go through to get to the other side? Because that's what you're going to have to go through 99% of the time. If you're not prepared to go through that, don't start. But if you are, then the third year you're sleeping on the floor of your van, you should say, this is exactly what I expected. Not, oh, this isn't my passion. You should have been grown up enough to decide three years ago that you weren't prepared to sleep on the floor of a van for three years and not started, or it just made it your hobby because there's nothing wrong with that. And 
what I think the book has contributed to people is a knowledge that there's nothing wrong with quitting. There's nothing wrong with quitting early, that people quit things all the time. And if you're doing it in service of finding the resources to do something worth doing, then I think it's a great idea. Mm. So to use your analogy, the people who are not only there in the gym in February, but are still in the gym the following February, they probably don't need a personal trainer or incentive or motivation to keep going back. They've already gotten through the dip. So can you tell us a little bit about who you're, who you're trying to reach with your new book, maybe who the audience is or the archetype or the type of person you think would benefit from it? Well, it's called The Practice, and the subtitle is Shipping Creative Work. And the three words, shipping creative work, I think are important. Because work means it's not your hobby. You did it as a professional. Creative means at some level it's original. And if it's original, that means it's risky because it might not work. And shipping, because if you keep it private, it's not work and it's not creative. It's just amusing you. So the act of shipping creative work is more important than ever. The chances that you can make a good living as a gate agent for Delta Airlines are very, very low from now on. That any job where someone can tell you exactly what to do all day is a job we're going to get a computer to do instead. And so if we're going to bother hiring someone, paying someone, engaging with someone, it's because they ship creative work. And you might think that that's the job of a painter, fine, or the job of a sculptor or a lyricist or somebody who is a tour guide, but I think it's the job of anybody who cares enough to change things for the better. And not enough has been written about how you do that. And I think there's a lot of mythology about gifts and who's allowed to do it. I think we're all allowed to do it if we care enough. It, and I've, uh, again, Purple Cow is another one of those, those books that I go back to. And I, I want to talk about authenticity and sort of the, the devil's advocate argument that says, well, I can ship it, but there are 100,000 other people just like me shipping the same things. How do I stand out? How do I, how am I, can I be authentic? Right. Well, first the devil is doing fine. He doesn't need an advocate. <laughs> but leaving that aside, I think authenticity is one of the most common traps. It's a crock. Nobody's authentic. Nobody. You stop being authentic after you were three months old. As soon as you got out of diapers, you're not authentic. After that, everything you're doing, you're doing on purpose. You dress the way you dress, talk the way you talk, you do what you do because you want to get something in return. That people go to work on Tuesday, even if they don't feel like it because it's their job. They're not being authentic. That if you go to see Tom Petty or Sarah Jones or whatever musician or playwright you care about, they're not going to show up and act the way they want to act authentically, they're going to show up and give the best performance they are capable of. That's what you bought a ticket for. And if you need surgery or a lawyer or almost anything, you don't want the person you hired to be authentic. You want them to do what they said they were going to do, to keep their promise. And saying I need to be authentic is a trap that's appropriate. Maybe if you're one of those Instagram people who gets to uh, make a living doing drama online. But for everybody else, be a professional. Say, I make promises and I keep them. That is who I am. And if you want to whine, get a dog. 
But the rest of the time, I think it's worth showing up and doing your best, just like you said you were going to do. So you talked about, uh, you know, Tom Petty or some other musician who shows up and, and performs. And there's a certain expectation that myself as a fan or an audience member has of what that performance is going to be like. Is that how you define genre? Is there such thing as genre? Yeah, genre is super important, and it is not the same as generic. So let's get that really clear. Generic means there's an easy substitute. Generic cream corn is just like the other generic cream corn. Buy the cheap one. Do not become generic. Generic is a really bad place to be. But genre, genre makes it super clear to the person you seek to make a promise to. And here's how it works. We don't have time to try every alternative. We do not read a book before we buy it. We do not watch a movie before we rent it. And so before we encounter anything, we have to figure out what bucket it belongs in. What category is it in? If you want to see a thriller, don't watch What's Up Doc with Barbara Streisand in it because it's not a thriller. It's a farce. That's a genre. Is What's Up Doc the same as every other farce? No, it's not. But within the genre, it qualifies. And that idea that I have to be in a bucket, that's a service. It's a service you're offering to the person who's looking for your work. So if you are the best trademark lawyer in America, you need to realize you're a lawyer. You need to realize you're a trademark lawyer. Those are genres. And within that, it probably pays to act like a trademark lawyer, at least until you are engaged enough with the client to figure out what she needs. And then you can go do that thing you do uniquely well. But to show up and say, well, maybe I'm a trademark lawyer, maybe I'm a sushi chef, maybe I'm this, maybe I'm this. People don't know what to do with you. And if they don't know what to do with you because you're being your authentic, passionate self, you know what they're going to do? They're going to ignore you. And that will make resistance really happy because resistance invented passion and authenticity so that you could be ignored. <laughs> and genre is the alternative to that. Genre says, I know enough about my field and I care enough about the people I serve to remind them of what they were looking for all along. I think I know the answer to this, but it, it, I'm interviewing you. So I have to ask if I'm uh if I'm a writer and I'm saying, yes, but Seth, I have this, this totally unique story I'm going to tell and I'm going to tell it my way and I'm a special snowflake and no one's ever written it like this before. Um, does that happen? Are there people who pull that off? Well, first of all, I'm thrilled if that's how you feel. And I encourage you to do that as a hobby. And there's nothing wrong with hobbies. Go have a hobby and make it into something that gives you joy. But if you want a publisher to give you money up front, that pitch isn't going to work. And if you want a reader who has never heard of you to give you money up front, it's going to be a long slog. Now, the internet makes this way easier than ever before. You can put up a video that reminds us of no other video, and we'll watch it for free. And we might love it enough that we'll tell 10 other people. And then we can go from that to a million people see it or 8 million people see it. And the next thing you know, you've invented a genre, right? So I was just watching um, 
a little while ago, the guy who, former NASA engineer, I think his name is Mark, but I might be wrong, who had a package stolen from in front of his house. So he made a 20 minute video of how he built a device that had glitter in it and stink bombs and a camera so that when someone stole the box, he could track it and then press a button and it would explode. There was no genre for that before. Right? It was loosely in the genre of funny internet videos, but not even that much. Well, he didn't get paid to make that video. He made that video as a hobby. And then because it got seen 10 million times, he made enough money that he could then fund the video about shooting squirrels through the air, which got seen 8 million, right? So yes, you're allowed to do that, but you got to begin with the posture of, I'm inventing a new genre here. It's probably not going to be seen by anybody. I better start out in a way that's free so that I can find my fans and my fans can find me. But that's really different than the person who's whining about the fact that no one will give them a record deal or that no one will hire them. If you wanna get hired up front, you're gonna to have to remind somebody of something. Yeah, and I, I remember uh, a number of years ago when Kevin Kelly's 1,000 True Fans was circulating and, and I remember feeling intimidated by that. 1,000 people sounded like a lot to me. And you've been very intentional about saying, make something for 10 people. And if they tell more people, then keep doing it. So can you talk about the smallest viable audience and, and, and maybe what that means for writers? Yes. Yeah, so in, in the creators workshop that we run, which is what inspired the book, what I told people, much to their chagrin, is that not only don't they currently have a thousand true fans, they might not even have 10. You would know if you had 10 true fans. They would be calling you on the phone and asking when your next thing is coming out, right? Getting to 10 true fans is actually very difficult. After 10, it gets a lot easier. How do you get a true fan? Someone who will pay you up front, someone who will go out of their way, drive across town, insist that someone come with them. You do that by having the empathy to imagine what it's like to be them, to figure out how to do something so scary that no one's done it before, but so important that it lines up with genre. And to be in between those two things is really hard. So back to the exploding glitter box. If you had just made a tweet about it, 100 people would have said, ha, huh, that's very funny, the end. But instead, he had to spend three months of his life and thousands of dollars to build this thing and film this thing and edit this thing because no one else had ever gone that far out on a limb. And it's going out on a limb. That's what we do when we're shipping creative work. Mm. Are there certain artists or different types of creative work that you think it might be a cleaner path to those first 10 true fans? Or do you feel like it's a pretty level playing field no matter what type of art you're creating? Oh no, it's not a level playing field at all. Um, if you want 10 true fans for your neurosurgery, you better be prepared for 15 long, long years of doing one thing. To get the head of the department of neurosurgery to be a true fan of yours, you're gonna have to write some papers, you blah, blah, blah. On the other hand, if you want a true fan in third grade, all you got to do is bring a whoopee cushion to school with you <laughs> and you're in, right? Because the turnover is uh, rapid. The taste of the audience is low. The uh, ability for an idea to spread is high. Yeah, that's easy. So there's a balance between how calcified and professional an audience is, what the upside is, 
because the upside of bringing a whoopee cushion to school when you're eight years old is you're going to get expelled. But it's not that hard. And, and when that audience you create for doesn't respond in the way you anticipated or hoped for, uh, that's, that's criticism. Uh, how do you handle criticism and how do you incorporate it into your creative process or do you? Right. So this is back to the idea of smallest viable audience. If people don't get the joke, that's not criticism. That just means you found the wrong people. Criticism is when someone who cares about you, who's learned and maybe smart, tells you how to make it better. That's priceless. That's priceless. Criticism is not one-star reviews on Amazon. One-star reviews on Amazon are worthless because all they tell you is this person's not in my audience. The three and four-star reviews from people who have seen your previous work, pay attention to that. So the smallest viable audience means I'm going to be generous enough to say this is only for a few people. The kind of person who knows who John Cage was. The kind of person who thinks Richard Serra had five good years in the middle of his career. The kind of person who is a subscriber to Carnegie Hall. I don't pick your person and ignore everybody else. You got to, as you McLeod would say, ignore everybody else because it's only for a few people. Because to say it's for everyone is to let yourself off the hook because then, of course, everyone's not going to like it and resistance will kick back in and now you can go hide again. <laughs> yeah, as, uh, as someone who has shown up and done the work every day for years and years and years, uh, how do you look at your body of work and, and how do you counsel or help other authors when they're trying to build theirs? Well, those are several questions looped together. So let me try to take it apart. First of all, uh, there are definitely people who have earned, in my view, the right for me to listen to their criticism and I seek it out, but everybody else I ignore. They're not in my audience. I'm sorry you didn't like it. Do you want your money back from that blog post? Because you didn't pay for it in the first place. <laughs> we'll see you. Thank you so much. Um, I want to be keeping track of what the people who learned from me taught someone else. And so 20,000 plus people have taken an Akimbo workshop or the Alt-MBA. That's really cool. But each of those 20,000 people has taught 20 people. Now I'm up to 400,000. And if those people each teach 10, that was a good project, right? Um, but that's not what everybody wants from their book or their TED Talk or whatever work they're shipping. So if I'm going to help somebody, I'm going to start by finding out what success even looks like for them. And in general, this is what independent people say. Success for me would be if every single person engages with it and everyone likes it. And I'm like, okay, now we need to start over because you've just decided not to succeed. Let's get really clear about what success would actually look like because you have a shot at that, but you need to start with your smallest viable audience. Who exactly is it for? And figuring out who it's for lets you decide if it's any good or not. That's wonderful advice. I love it. JD and I are both sort of suckers for process. Just curious uh, when and how you get your writing in on a daily basis. Um, so everyone should have a daily blog, even if you write it under another name, even if you don't tell anybody. Because if you go to bed knowing you need to write a blog post tomorrow, your brain will do some productive work at night. If you go to bed angry at your boss, the opposite will happen. And so 
I don't uh, write a book because it's time to write a book. I write a book because I have no choice because writing a book is a pain in the ass. But uh, I write a blog post every day because I have no choice. I decided 10 plus years ago that there was going to be a blog post every day. And I don't have a new meeting with myself. Oh, should I write a blog post tomorrow or not? There's going to be a blog post tomorrow. So once you've made that choice, it's a lot easier to do your work. Hmm. Simple. <laughs> Simple, but not easy. Right, right. Well, uh, we're all excited for the new book. We'll, we'll definitely have links in the show notes where, where people can pick it up. And I thought maybe a fun way to kind of pull the conversation to a close would to uh, maybe get out our crystal balls and, and uh, future trip for a moment. And as someone who's been in this industry, this publishing industry for a long time, where is it headed? What's the future look like for book publishing? Traditional book publishing existed to make booksellers happy. That was the audience. Every clue you could look for was clear. Random House's phone number, does anybody know it? No, because you're not supposed to call them. The bookstore is supposed to call. Well, the bookstores are now gone. Excuse me. The bookstores are now gone. They're probably not coming back. There will be bookstores that are like gift shops that are special, magical places. I love them. But if you want a book, we know where you're going to go get a book. That place also makes it so that anybody in the world can put a book on the Kindle with no middlemen. And so the long tail has officially arrived in book publishing. The backlist will continue to pay the bills for the big guys for years to come. The big guys will continue to need famous authors to make big books. But if you want to break into publishing, yeah, if Random House offers you a deal, please, by all means. But for everybody else, figure out how to make something on the Kindle that 10 people will tell other people about. Figure out how to build a following. Once you have a following, then you can get a deal with a book publisher. But the idea, as it was in the old days, that Harper Lee's going to get a phone call and that some big fancy publisher is going to assign her an editor who's going to make To Kill a Mockingbird into a classic, I don't see that happening for most people ever again. And I think that might be really good news. Because when I started out as a book packager, uh, they published 1,000 books a week in the United States. And now they publish 1,000 books every three hours, which means that your chance of showing up on the Kindle just went way up. And now it's on you to write something that spreads. All right. The one and only Seth Godin. Uh, what'd you think, man? <laughs> he definitely, here's, here's the thing. So, you know, I've mentioned this before. I've, I've got a form of autism called Asperger's. Um, so we've kind of got our own motivational speaker sort of built in, you know, when, when you've got as, as, when you're in Aspie. Um, so like to give you an example, if you put any kind of task in front of me, um, and my wife knows this, like if she tells me at, you know, 10 o'clock at night, Hey, the light bulb down in the laundry room is out. Like I will not be able to sleep. I won't be able to do anything until I head down there and I fix that light bulb. And it's almost like this little voice in the back of my head that, you know, it starts off at a little whisper, like, Hey, that light bulb, you got to go take care of that light bulb. And then it gets louder and louder and louder, um, until I, until I get it done. And, you know, so as an Aspie, like the idea of, you know, even reading motivational text is just something that's very foreign to me. Um, but at the same time, like I can recognize somebody that really knows what he's talking about. And, and Seth is definitely one of those guys. Like, I mean, sort of like a, a literary Yoda. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a great way of putting it. Uh, his book is coming out this link week. We'll, we'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, but he's, he's been so instrumental in, in 
what I think is sort of cutting through some of the the mental uh, problems that writers have, the intellectual uh, challenges, like, you know, talking about Stephen Pressfield's idea of resistance and, and how Seth gets through that. And, uh, and his book, The Dip, is just, it's brilliant. And like, it was something I went back to um, very recently in talking about the Career Author podcast. And is that something we should continue or not? And I went back to The Dip and read that. And um, you know, he, he doesn't have the answers, but he, he forces you to think about the most important questions. And uh, it was a real pleasure. To, I, I could have talked to him for hours, <laughs> but I was, you know, was trying to keep it succinct and in line with what we do. But um, just a, a, a wealth of wisdom. Yeah, and he brought up a, a couple good points that I kind of latched on to. And one of them was the pay attention to the three and four star reviews on your books. Uh, I, I know a lot of authors that, you know, they will tell you they don't read their reviews. Um, I know a lot of authors that will tell you they don't read their reviews and then head over to their computer and actually read their reviews. Um, and he's, he was dead on with what he said. Like the one star reviews for the most part are, are people that, you know, yeah, oh, this isn't the type of book I normally read. You know, like they're so far off base that they really, you know, you just got to discount them and kind of ignore them. But the three or four stars, that's really where the, you know, the legit feedback is at. Those are people that, you know, are most likely reading your either your books or, or books very similar to yours. And, and they downgraded you for a specific reason. And a lot of times they'll tell you what that reason is. Um, and you, you need a thick skin. You, you have to be able to read those. You have to be able to understand them and, and hopefully incorporate it into your, your work. Um, I, I think that's huge from a, a growth standpoint. You're not going to get better as an author if you're not you know, willing to take that critical advice, um, whether it's from readers, whether it's from your peers um, or, or somebody that's been doing it you know, longer and better than you. Um, you know, get, grab as much advice as possible. Yeah, totally agree with that. Uh, I, I was thinking of you, too, when we were talking about uh, Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans and then talking about the idea of finding 10 people that really want what you're doing. I know that you were you you were ghostwriting for many many years. Right. So how did you make that transition from sort of not even having your name associated with a project to then having to build an audience of your own? Um, well, you, you have to approach it. You know, I, well, I approached it almost like an advertiser, I, I guess, because um, I started you know as as JD Barker as my own brand. You know, basically the same place everybody else does. I started at zero on my mailing list, and I, I needed to add to that. So you know, I, I sat back and and looked at you know, okay, I've got a, a book that's that's done. Um, you know, luckily I, I had Stephen King's blessing on it, which was huge. Um, and I, I thought that was going to propel it, but it honestly didn't. Um, so I ended up reaching out to a friend of mine at Publishers Weekly, and I basically told them or, uh, you know, how I got Stephen King's blessing and they, they wrote it up. Um, and I, I purposely did that because, you know, like in, in the, the short story is, you know, I printed out the manuscript and we hopped in the car and we went over to, to Steve's house. Um, we never actually got to his house and I probably wouldn't have actually gone to his house cause I know better. Um, yeah. but the fact that we tried made for an interesting story. So publishers weekly wrote that up, um, that appeared in the, in their, their magazine and on, online. And that's what really caused my, that book to take off. Um, so I didn't have fans that I could reach out to. I didn't have, you know, other people that could, you know, really, you know, take out a bullhorn and start shouting my name. Um, so I started looking at other ways to make that happen. So in my case, publishers weekly. So that, that story came out, book sales started to, you know, first a little trickle, then a lot more, and then a lot more. Um, and a lot of that was word of mouth. And that, that's where the mailing list really started to, to shine. Um, so I'm constantly looking for, you know, other things, you know, like Bram Stoker's family, when they reached out to me and asked me to write the prequel to Dracula, you know, I, I knew it would be a pain in the butt to work on something like that because, you know, it's, there, there are people that have doctorates in Dracula. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to get that right. Um, and I knew we were crossing a line because we were covering information that Bram didn't even talk about. You know, we were using his 
notes, so I knew it was legit. I knew where it came from. But um, we were we were going to stir some stuff up, which we did. Um, but you know, again, like I knew that stirring stuff up would cause more people to look at my name, more people to jump on my mailing list, more people to find me. Um, so as, as somebody that was new, I, I'm constantly looking for for those types of projects. You know, what can I do next? You know, working working with Patterson. I mean, it's a great learning experience, but at the same time, I know it's going to put me in front of a bigger audience. Um, that's you know, it's worth you know the the trade off, the time that I'm losing on my own projects to be able to do that. Um, so I'm just, I'm constantly looking for what is that next thing that's going to grab people out of, you know, left field that I wouldn't normally get on my own. So when you were, when you were working on your first novel, did you, was that just a story you knew you wanted to write or were you thinking about an ideal reader at that, at that point before you've published anything as J.D. Barker? No, I actually had, there's two books that are on my computer that have not been published yet. Um, and this started in the 90s. So I think I had, you know, I, I had six different books that hit the New York Times list with other people's names on them while I was ghostwriting. Um, when that started, I think at like around number two, um, back in like the early 90s, I decided, well, I'm going to write a book of my own. Um, so I started doing that and I, I reached out and I got an agent prematurely because I was, you know, I was working in that environment. It was very easy for me to get an agent back in the 90s. Um, she got very excited about the book. She started shopping it around. Um, Viking Penguin actually wanted the book, um, but the book was very long by the time I finished it. It was 893 pages. Wow. Um, so we, we gave it to them and they're like, this is great, but it's too long for a debut. We need to either cut it back or chop it up or, or something. So then I spent years trying to figure out how to break that out into a series and still come up with, you know, two or three cohesive stories um finally i just said well that's it's just not working like i can't do it um and my agent pulled me aside and she said well why don't you just put it you know the book in the drawer write something brand new um you know to, to get that first book out there and if it sells well then they'll probably put this other one out there at the original length and, and you're good um so i did that so i sat down and i wrote the second book turned it in and they're like well you know what the first book was very much like stephen king and that's kind of what we were looking for this one's more of a tom clancy dan brown sort of thing it's it's not really what we we need you know right now so now I've got two books sitting on a computer that, that aren't published and I'm listening to all these other people telling me what I need to do um, so the, the general thinking was you need to write something scary again which is where you know Forsaken came came through or came came out of me um, and then I just kind of went from there I got it. Okay. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm yeah, always everybody's got a everybody's got a you know different journey like nobody right. gets there the same way. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Anything else about the, the talk with Seth that kind of um, was a flag for you? I'm not so sure that everybody needs to write a blog post every day, <laughs> <laughs> but but I understand what he was saying as as a motivator. You know, like he's going to bed thinking about that blog post tomorrow. You know, his, his brain is churning and working on it. And, you know, I, I personally do the same thing. Like, you know, when I'm falling asleep, I'm thinking about what I'm going to be writing the next day, you know, because I know that I'm going to sit down at my computer. It, I think it's more about routine, like knowing yeah. that you're going to sit down and you're going to write something is going to force the rest of your, your mind and your, you know, everything to work towards that, that goal, um, whether you want it to or not. Um, you know, so in most cases, by the time I wake up in the morning, I've, I've got a pretty good handle on what I'm going to do. And I hit the ground running and I knock it out and, you know, two or 3000 words or so by the 10. 30 or 11. Yeah, it's all about that consistency. It's all about showing up. I think yeah. that's what Seth is getting at. And uh, I've heard recently, like one of the internet marketers, uh, a guy named, by the name of Russell Brunson, has said, if you, if you publish something every day for one year, you'll never work again. Uh, and yeah, it's a bit hyperbole, but like, I, I think the idea is whether it's a blog post, a podcast episode, a scene like if you if you do it every single day for 365 consecutive days you're going to end up with something that's going to carry you forward yeah i often tell people that when i'm teaching classes you know if you sit down and you write 250 words a day you know it's it's a paragraph or two that's a novel in a year 
You know, anybody can do that. Where it gets tricky is, you know, if you write on Monday and then you take Tuesday off and you take Wednesday off and then, oh, Thursday, I've got to take my kid to the soccer game. I'm not going to have time. Maybe I'll write Saturday. And then you sit down and you write another, you know, it's so difficult to, to get any words on paper like that. Yeah. Writing is very much like like building muscle. Like I, I do 100 pull-ups every morning. I didn't start at 100 pull-ups. I think the first day that I did it, I did four. Yep. You know, and like the next day I, I probably did four again. And then it was five and then it was seven. And then, oh, wow, I can do 10. You know, and, and, and I know if I stop right now, like, you know, I'm not going to, if I take a week off and come back to it, I'm probably not gonna be able to do a hundred. I might be lucky if I get 50 or 60 and writing is the same way. If you do it every single day, it gets easier and easier. You know, the 250 becomes nothing. You knock that out in a heartbeat and all of a sudden you're looking at 500 and then you're looking at a thousand or you're looking at 1500. It's all about um, just r routine and just building that writer's muscle. Yep, for sure. So yeah, so you guys don't need to write a blog post every day, but but definitely consider that routine and that consistency. That really matters. Absolutely. Cool. So who do we have on the slate for next week? Next week, we've got Stuart Beige. Um, that's how you pronounce it, right? Is it Beige or Bosch? I, I think it's Beige. Okay. I'm, I'm just going to call him Stuart if I ever see him in real life because I'm honestly not sure. Um, but <laughs> one of the best cover designers out there. Um, you know, I found him because he, was, he does Mark Dawson's covers. Um, he actually did the cover for uh, Josh Mallerman's Bird Box for the hardcover. Um, you know, and I, like I, I started seeing all these covers that I really liked. And when I started connecting the dots, I realized they were all being done by the same person and it turned out to be him. Um, so now I hound him for, for every cover. Um, <laughs> and you know, like we talked about the other day, like I, I've got no clue, you know, what looks good and what doesn't, I am terrible yeah. at this kind of thing. So I use focus groups for it. Um, and he's one of those people where you can kind of communicate a little tidbit of an idea and he comes back at you with something that's usually pretty spectacular. Um, and if it's not, you know, he's wide open to making changes to it and getting it there. And, and he, he always does. I mean, everyone that he's done for me, he's hit it out of the park. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be fun talking to him. He's, he, I, He's kind of a low-key, soft-spoken guy, and uh, he doesn't necessarily like the spotlight. So if you're listening to the, you know, the self-publishing uh, formula, you 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 know you might not you might not hear him, um, but he he is a fantastic designer. It's going to be a fun conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I know he's booking pretty far out too. So if you actually need a cover and uh, you want to reach out to him, I, I mean, he'll hopefully he'll talk about it. But I think he's like six months out at this point. He's got wow. so many people online. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All, All right. right. Uh, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.